Well, like I said, we're still in our series on worship, but we're wrapping up, and I really do mean that, wrapping up. We are um, coming to the end, and we're in week 20 at this point of Biblical and Reformed Worship. That's kind of our series all summer. Um, But today and next week, we're concluding by looking at liturgy and music. The topic that most of you guys have been chomping at the bit to get to. So I want to start a little bit and kind of review just a broad overview of kind of how we've got here. Um, to, To come to this point where we can now look at music in relation to corporate worship. We began 20 weeks ago with a theological approach. We made note of the fact that to study the issue of worship, it's directly related to our conclusions and our convictions on these other areas of Scripture, uh, or God's revelation. Scripture, doctrine of God, doctrine of man, doctrine of the gospel. Our doctrine of worship flows out of our understanding of these things. And so that's kind of where we began from there, after kind of hitting a few of the, you know, the big points, who is God, who is man, what is our convictions about the Word, we then moved to define worship. We defined it broadly in the respect that everybody worships something, um, believer and unbeliever alike. We also defined it narrowly, what is Christian worship? And we talked about its relation to Christ and how worship, true worship, is, is through the Spirit through the indwelling Holy Spirit. From there, we move to distinguish between private worship and public worship. We showed the importance of both, and the importance of making a distinction, not just saying that everything we do is worship. Yes, in some sense, everything we do is worship. Everything comes from a worshipful heart. But we distinguish these two things and and, and, um, showed the importance of each one in the Christian life. From there, we moved on from private worship to focus more on public worship, specifically on corporate worship. And we considered its special nature. I argued that the teaching of Scripture indicates that God's special presence and blessing is upon corporate worship. You know, like when two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in their midst, right? We look at the temple imagery and the fact that God dwelt in the Old Testament temple, but in the New Testament it's the people of God that are the temple and the place of His special dwelling. And so, in corporate worship, there's a special presence of God and a special blessing upon it. From there, we turn to the very controversial regulative principle of worship. Okay, if if corporate worship is distinct, if it's special, then what are the guidelines? What what are the boundaries that govern our our corporate worship? And so we defined this. uh, We looked at it from Scripture. Basically, it's the teaching that God instructs us on how we ought to worship, and that we're not to go beyond that and add to or take away Scripture in regarding the public worship of God. And finally, we began to make application of this regulative principle. We talked about the elements of worship. What should we be doing when we gather in corporate worship? And we also talked about the day of worship. You know, when and how often should we gather in worship? And what are the, the boundaries um, that, that govern what it means to forsake the assembly of the brethren or not? So that's where we ended up last week. And that is where we're at. But 
Before we move forward, I just want to emphasize something that's important. Our study and conclusions on music, which we're going to talk about in the next few weeks, are built on the foundation of the last 19 weeks. That's pretty obvious, but keep that in mind. I'm not just going to stand up here and make some stuff about, you know, style and lyrics and forms of worship and drums and electric guitar and just as if it just falls out of the sky. These are built upon conclusions that we've already been making. So keep that in mind. All of these things come together in making specific application. So here's our plan for the next two or three weeks. Basically, I've got two weeks of material, but I figured there's going to be a lot of questions. So I'm going to leave it three weeks. So just to make sure we have time to answer all the questions. But I want to talk about liturgy and music in corporate worship. How should we order our worship? We're going to be very brief on that. What should be our goal with worship music? Is music style neutral? Do only the words matter, not the tune? Is style simply a matter of preference? Are all styles suitable for public worship depending only on the culture? Is it permissible to take a secular tune and substitute Christian lyrics? Should our worship be traditional or contemporary or both? Are there any forbidden instruments? I got to go there, guys. <laughs> I grew up, you know, with some of that. The drums were of the devil, so they were forbidden. Believe it or not, yes. What about special music and solos? What about raising of hands, swaying, clapping, dancing? These are just some of the questions that you know, I've heard from you guys. There are questions that we ought to ask when we come to this subject. What is permissible or what kind of direction does God's Word give us in these areas? And so these are kind of the things I want to, I want to hit on in the next couple of weeks. So, we're all clear, right? Let's talk about liturgy briefly. First, I saw this. I thought it was an important thought. It's kind of beside the point, but in light of the eclipse this week, I saw this quote on on, um, Twitter. The sun will burn your eyes out from a distance of 92 million miles. And do you expect to casually stroll into the presence of its maker? I thought that was a good kind of reminder or maybe a point of contemplation as we begin this study. Because this is kind of what I've trying to been trying to argue in the sense that corporate worship is the place of God's special presence on earth. It's not that he isn't present everywhere, but he is present with his people when they gather and worship in a unique way. And we ought to come to corporate worship with something like this in mind. Uh, when we consider liturgy, when we consider music, when we consider this entire doctrine of worship, let us remember God's special presence so that we don't approach it casually. And regardless of our convictions on the order of worship, the 
music, the style, even how we dress in worship. Let me just emphasize that let's be careful. Let's be careful because we are entering into the presence of um, a very holy God and a very powerful God. And it's so important to know what you believe and why you believe it. If nothing else, to be indifferent here is perhaps the worst mistake of all. If I communicated anything over the last 20, 20 weeks, please don't be indifferent about the things of worship. Please don't come to it and say, it doesn't matter what you do on Sunday morning just as long as you know you love Jesus. It doesn't matter. These things, it just everyone has their own opinion. Please don't, because this is... This is serious stuff. And you may not agree with the conclusions that I'm putting forward. Um, And that's certainly understandable. But I urge you to have convictions based upon the Word of God. uh, Because of God's special presence. And we don't just casually walk into His presence. Alright, so. Liturgy, if you've paid attention to our bulletins, sometimes I'll put it in the sidebar. But our liturgy here is guided by three principles. It's guided by the regular principle of worship, which we discussed the last, I don't know, four or five weeks. It's also guided by the dialogical principle, which is basically that um, there's an interaction, a conversation going on in worship. God speaks and God's people respond. Not only do we see that in Scripture, but we see it in uh, basically almost ubiquitous across Uh, the history of the New Testament church, the last 2,000 years, and how churches have always ordered worship. God speaks, and then God's people respond in prayer, in song, in praise. But it's also guided here by the gospel pattern. Maybe you've heard that, me mention that before. The gospel pattern and the dialogical principle kind of come together. And basically... Our liturgy is designed to tell a story. The, the, the order of our worship, the structure in itself, is to convey a truth. And its order is specifically designed to illustrate each phase of the Christian life. Kind of like a pilgrim on a journey. If you think of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've ever read that, and you compare that to our order of worship... You might see some similarities here. We have this revelation of God. That's kind of the first step before anyone is converted. You have this understanding of who God is. But then when you understand who God is, you realize that you're a sinner. Oh, okay, God is holy. I'm not. That leads to confession and and repentance, which then God responds with forgiveness. To His forgiveness, we respond in gratitude Praise, thanksgiving, offering. And then God responds with instruction. Okay, now that you're saved, now that you've, you've, you've seen the gospel and embraced it, here are the good works which I have prepared for you to walk in. And then finally, God's blessing upon our works as we go out from here to walk in those good works. So this is kind of the structure of our liturgy, and this is, in a sense, the phase of the Christian life. And why do we do this? Well, uh, in one sense, to illustrate the gospel in the Christian life, right? Illustrate how it comes to us and how it leads us. 
but also to provide balance. To have worship when we gather that is not just all joy or all somber confession or all instruction, even though that's usually a tendency of Reformed churches, right? All about preaching and teaching. But you have like charismatic churches, it's all about the joy and the celebration. You have, you know, very fundamental conservative churches where it's all about just confessing your sin and think about how dirty you are. You have Reformed churches, it's all about instruction. Well, our desire is to provide a balance. To give time for joy, but also time for confession and sorrow. To give time for instruction, but also time for gratitude, for thanksgiving, things of that nature. And basically the argument here is that imbalanced worship produces an imbalanced understanding of God and an imbalanced Christian life. It's my conviction. If you do have worship that is all about celebration, never confession, or never instruction, it's going to affect the type of Christians and the type of Christian behavior that comes out of those churches. So our goal is to provide a balance so that we give time to all of these things, all of these different phases of the gospel and phases of the Christian life. That's our goal in the liturgy. But also, it's because it's the pattern we see in Scripture. Um, I shared this in Bible study a few weeks ago. Some of you have already seen it. But it, it, Isaiah 6, right? This is where Isaiah sees the th- God sitting on the throne. And then he says, whoa, I am undone. And the angel comes with a burning coal and touches his lips. Um, and then he's sent out. Here I am, send me, right? That famous passage. Well, just think about what it looks like. We have God's character recognized. Oops, let me do this. There we go. He walks in and he's like, oh my goodness. God is amazing. He isn't who I thought he was. I saw him on his throne and the angels and the seraphim. And this is related to our call to worship in our reading of the law. This is a revelation of who God is. But then he's like, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. This is really, really bad. Woe is me. Isaiah pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me. I'm done. I'm finished. There's no way I can stand before this holy God. And this, of course, follows our confession of sin in our liturgy. But then God's grace is exhibited. The angel comes with that coal and cleanses him and says, You are forgiven, Isaiah. He touches his lips, symbolic for the fact that he was convicted by the fact that he had a dirty mouth. This is God's grace exhibited, the reading of the gospel, where in the same sense, in our liturgy, we have this grace of God exhibited and declared to all so that we can be sure of our forgiveness. God's grace assured, he's got the promise um, uh, declared to him, which is our assurance of pardon. And then, after that, that's when he's like, all right, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm ready to serve you. I'm ready to go. And that's when we have our hymn of gratitude, our pastoral prayer of thanksgiving and intercession. And it's when we worship God through our giving of tithes and offerings. Just like Isaiah is like, all right, I'm ready. 
offers himself as a living sacrifice. And then, in response to that, the word comes back from God. Okay, you're ready to go. You're cleansed. You're forgiven. Now, here's what I want you to do. And that's where we have the preaching of God's word. Instruction. And then the promise of covenantal blessing. After he's given instructions, he's given a promise. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless your work here, Isaiah. And following that, that's the purpose of the benediction. To send all of us out with that understanding. In Christ, we have his blessing to never leave us or forsake us. And if we really wanted to dig down into this, we'd see the same pattern in other places. We see it at Mount Sinai in Deuteronomy 5. I'm not going to go through it here. We see it at Solomon's worship at the uh, uh, temple dedication in 2 Chronicles. The same form. We see it in the structure of the last section of Romans, beginning in chapter 11, with this great and awesome God. And then all the way through there, we see that progression of the Apostle Paul and how he writes. And we see it in the eschatological worship, the heavenly worship in Revelation 4 and 5. So this isn't just something that's found in Isaiah 6. If you want to do more on this, um, I would recommend Christ-Centered Worship by Brian Chappelle. He's a president of Covenant Theological Seminary, PCA Seminary. But an excellent book. He makes the argument from these passages that we see that same form that we saw in Isaiah 6. So the conclusion here is that not only does a gospel pattern illustrate the gospel in the Christian life and provide balance to our corporate worship so that we're not giving too much emphasis on one thing or the other, but it's also a pattern that we see in Scripture complete with a dialogical principle. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. It's not all about us singing about our faith, you know, how awesome we are. It's not all about God in the sense that He speaks and we never respond back. It represents a covenantal relationship, a relationship between God and His people. Any questions? Trent? Yeah, um, yeah, and I'm not arguing that you have to hold that strict pattern, you know, or you're sinning. <laughs> um, it, it is admittedly a little bit broad, um, but the, the main headings are there. Yeah, baptism in the Lord's Supper would fall under the sense of um, instruction, but also kind of also the benediction in a sense, because the Lord's Supper is that confirming to us of the covenant, God's blessing upon us. Baptism is as well. It's um, welcoming in a covenant member, uh, but also it's, it's a means of grace for them um, in that washing away of their sins is symbolized. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Oh, good. We're doing good on time. So feel free to ask questions. Music. Talk about music. Some preliminary considerations. It's probably all we're going to get to today. <laughs> I hope that what I just argued from liturgy 
would at least convince you of this point. That worship music is to consistently fit into that gospel pattern. Right? Music isn't to be all joy, all sorrow, all lament, all teaching. Although it is all of those things. We don't just sing celebration songs. We don't just sing songs of lament and confession. We don't just sing songs that strictly focus on teaching God's people doctrine. (coughs) Music is to be balanced as well. I'm going to argue from the Psalms. The Psalms you see a variety of different types of Psalms that hit on these different things. And so our goal here... is that worship music is to fit into this gospel pattern, to be consistent with where it's at in the worship service and what we're trying to communicate. Contrary to popular belief, music is not just warm-up for the preaching. (laughs) And that is very popular, trust me. (laughs) All right, stand up, put your hands together. (laughs) It's not just warm-up for the preaching. We are to sing, this is what I'm going to argue, with intentionality. And that fits into this gospel pattern. Not just what feels good. Not just what we think connects us to God. Not just what appeals to visitors. But we are to seeing intentionality, with intentionality, in light of this gospel pattern. So, what is intentionality in worship music? Well, as I've argued, is to be balanced, to fit the different phases of the gospel pattern, but also it's to be consistent in lyric to the truth that it's proclaiming. I guess this would be a subpoint of the above, actually. All right? If it's a song of joy, the lyrics are to be joyful. If it's a song, if it's in the part of confession, it's to be a song of confession or a song of instruction or encouragement. Right? So it's to be consistent with where it's at in the worship service and what it's trying to communicate in a sense. But also, and this is, this is the can of worms that we're going to really get into next week, but it's to be consistent in style with the truth. That it's proclaiming. Now again, I'm really going to get into this next week. So, not a barrage of questions today, or you might just get... We're going to get to that. (laughs) We're going to get to that, Nathan. Don't worry, All right. (laughs) Hang out for 20 more weeks. Does that make sense? I mean, the style of a hymn of confession ought to differ from the style of a hymn of rejoicing, right? Yes, more on this below. <laughs> I'm going to argue that style, or excuse me, put it this way, the medium is the message. Maybe you've heard that before. The style of music cannot be arbitrarily or theoretically separated 
from the truth that it proclaims. Yes. We actually, uh, so we remember this at uh, Sycamore, there was a particular hymn, and I'm not even sure which one it, it was, but we always noted how the music, I mean, we're talking about a hymn, the music just didn't seem to fit the lyrics. Hmm. And um, the lyrics were talking about, I was a wandering sheep, wandered far from the fold. John. I know there is this Wesleyan hymn, I'm trying to think of the title, but it was very, I had words like, uh, the bloody sacrifice appears, his five wounds you know, pour out, raised for me. You know, it was very kind of serious about the crucifixion. And uh, we're a church where they would uh, sing that over a flip so hmm. So the bloody sacrifice appears. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like yeah. 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 I completely agree. Yeah. I um, I am jumping ahead, but one of the arguments I'm going to make is that think of an advertising jingle, and think about if an advertising jingle is sufficient to communicate the wrath of God against the unbelievers in hell. Or the holiness of God. Um, I'm going to argue that it's insufficient. You're not going to sing an advertising jingle, yeah. hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle, and you know, or whatever it may be, yeah. um, and put sacred words like that to that type of tune and af- expect that the message to be effectively communicated. I mean, this is a much larger subject, but we can talk about, you know, the, the youth group movement and American seeker-sensitive church growth move, uh, uh, culture, you know, where everything is uh, pizza and games and trips to the beach. And it implicitly communicates that the things of God aren't serious, that these aren't truths where in hangs your eternal destiny. I think the church, by and large, has done a very poor job of particularly towards children with VBS and youth groups. And not to say that all that stuff is wrong, but just to, you know, it's, been, it's definitely imbalanced in, in by and large. But it, the, I think the church has done a very poor job of preparing young people, young Christians, for suffering, for the rigors of the discipline of the Christian life for holy living? Another thing that's always baffling with kids' toys that have a Christian thing, you always get Noah's Ark, and it's always very playful. 
And if you think for a minute about the flight, almost all of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, we had them, you know, Joel had his guitar for this yeah. little Paris Van Holmes. Yeah, very nice. it's cute, isn't it? Yeah. I keep thinking, you know, we're missing part of the point of the story. This is not a happy day with the animals. That's right. This week, my kids, we were driving in the car, and Riley went to listen to Adventures in Odyssey, and which I grew up listening to. Adventures in Odyssey. It was on Sodom and Gomorrah, and uh, it was just funny because it, it just it was it was like you know like a sitcom portrayal of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I mean, again, I don't want to I don't want to be too harsh. Uh, that kind of stuff can be helpful in so many ways. But I was a little scratching my head a little bit. I'm like, this was a really horrific event against a really horrific sin, and it's really put in the context of you know this is all cool. This is Bible story. We've got to be careful. Well, I think for what that's done to children, worship music is done for adults. <laughs> and we're going to get into that. All right. So, if I'm going to argue, if the church followed this type of intentionality, gospel pattern, consistent, balanced, right? I believe that much of the so-called worship, war, uh, worship wars could be avoided. If we order our worship with intentionality based upon the gospel story. But unfortunately, that's not the day and age we live in. Music definitely tends to be the most divisive issue in churches today. I think particularly in small churches that struggle to attract visitors. Or traditional churches that are lacking in young people. This is what I've heard over and over and over again. As I've talked with churches, I've talked with pastors. Oh, our, our music, they're just they're sticking with the organ. They're never going to attract young people. We've got to consider this stuff, right? So, But I, uh, the first step in this, I believe, is intentionality. Let's have intentionality. Let's know why we're singing what we're singing. Okay? All right. I do want to note as well, again, we're still under preliminary considerations, that there's some legitimate criticism to go on both sides. All right? Criticism of high liturgy. It lacks authenticity, spontaneity. It lacks a personal feel. It's uptight. It's rigid. It's boring. It's outdated. I think a lot of that is legitimate. Without a doubt. We can't just, you know, lower our crosshairs on the contemporary Christian music movement. Of course, with low liturgy, the criticism of that is that it lacks reverence. It lacks a sense of the glory and majesty of God. It lacks a sense of the uh, specialness of the occasion, the uniqueness of the occasion. I'm going to argue that unduly catering to high or low or traditional versus contemporary is dangerous both ways. Tradition and cultural expectations are not preeminent. That's not how we order our worship, our music, or our style. Of music. 
And we've got to be careful of falling into either one. Trying to appeal to a certain demographic. All right. But first, before we get into those details, think about some attempts that have been made to solve this division. Right? This contemporary versus traditional. Let's hold two services. Let's have a contemporary service at 10.30, traditional service at 9 a.m. Everybody's happy, right? Is, is that a legitimate solution to try to quell the worship wars, to try to give everybody kind of satisfaction? Is this the best way forward in light of the division? I mean, this is, again, I bring this up not to you know, slam churches that do this. There are many very, very fine and true churches that do this. Um, but I think it's worth considering, and I want to give you a few counterpoints just for your own consideration, uh, because it will help us think through worship music in general if we deal with kind of how would we respond to something like this. So I don't, I don't want to, you know, again, I don't want to self-righteously uh, condemn other churches, but I am going to argue for a slightly different way of doing this. And I just want to give, and this is where we'll close, a few concerns with this contemporary versus traditional type of dichotomy. Hopefully these concerns will kind of get you thinking about how worship and worship music ought to be used. Josh? So you seem to be making a distinction between contemporary and traditional. Everybody makes that distinction. And you're saying that worship needs to be both joyful and solemn at the same time. Are you trying to say that contemporary worship is joyful and traditional is solemn? No. Um, I'm just using it more broadly in the sense that because there's so much disagreement on um, styles of music in our day, a lot of churches will say, we're going to make everybody happy, and we're going to have two different services. So if you like contemporary hymns, you can listen, come and listen to a guy leading on guitar and drums. But if you like traditional hymns, this service is going to have the organ. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not diving that deep into specifics. Maybe, maybe they do follow that gospel pattern in both. Okay, because yeah, I was thinking yeah. you can have solemn songs and joyful songs. Both yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can even pres- I'm, I'm, I'm attacking, attacking. It's a bad word. <laughs> I'm counter-arguing making two services to, to, to heal this issue, All right? That's what I, I'm not talking about the details of which one is legitimate. Presumably, they're both legitimate. But my concern is, let's not define our entire worship service by their style. It's a danger in having two services in a church, It gives undue focus and emphasis on style. And that's improper. It gives undue focus and emphasis on the music to the detriment of the rest of the worship service. That's not the most important thing. That's not what should define a worship service. Do you have a question? Sorry. All right, moving quickly. Another thing, it implicitly communicates that church is all about meeting your needs and preferences. 
Uh, you may think that's a little harsh. I'm not trying to be harsh, but implicitly, it does communicate that. It reflects that consumer mindset. You should get what you want out of church. It puts the ball in your court, as it were. I think, which can lead to some dangerous implications. You should expect the church to cater, this implicitly communicates that you should expect, expect the church to cater to your preferences. It implicitly communicates musical preferences trump everything else. And it gives more of an individual focus rather than a corporate mindset. What about love? What about sacrifice, forbearance, service, humility? All of these things, community, it gets pushed to the back burner. Giving up your rights, your preferences, your desires in a particular area for the greater good? No, it puts you back in charge. And it puts that focus on you rather than on the body as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm arguing again. This is in one church with two services. You're still choosing one based upon convictions, but not in the same church. You're, if and I'm going to get to this actually in the next point. So hold on, <laughs> because ultimately it splits the church. You're not splitting a church when you choose one church over another. What do you think about churches that have multiple services that are different styles? Oh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's not preferable, but, I mean, in some cases they're so big that you, I mean, you don't have a choice. I mean, this isn't a doctrinal issue, right? It's more of a reference issue. So they have the same doctrine. Yeah. It's, yep. Okay. Yeah. What about a church that says, has, say, has two services but has a... Community Sunday school hour in between. Yeah. Traditional contemporary. Yeah, I, I think that. I mean, that's a that's a good the balance only to have. But between the two services would be music style. Yeah, but as I'm going to argue here, the the church de facto becomes two separate worship two uh, two separate churches, and even if you do have a community event where they're all engaged, they're not engaged in the most central foundational. Um, essential aspect of the church, which is its corporate worship. The same issue arises with two services, even if they have the same music style. Yeah, it can. Yeah, absolutely. But again, uh, we're touching back on other issues, like um, what I what I already considered in the in the fact that uh, with two services, you're also catering to individuality. You're not doing that with in individual preferences over, above the community preferences. You're not doing that if you're just have to have two services because you can't fit everybody in. You're not breaking up those two services based upon the needs and desires and wants and preferences of individuals. Does that make sense, Trent? Not to undermine your point or anything, but... You're all undermining my point. (laughs) (laughs) It is is kind of catering preferences, though, based upon time, because some people might want to go to the earlier service. Yeah. Some people might want to go to the later service. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's born out of necessity. Um and not out of uh, a desire to please everybody, which, again, that's the main thing. Mark? Uh, 
is a more specific real-life example, but at LMBC, um, they, they, because of the sheer amount of people, they have to have four services, yeah. two time slots. So there's one contemporary and one traditional yeah. at the same time. And only one of those can have the organ. Yeah. So doesn't it make sense that they'd have different music styles? Yeah, I guess in some sense, yeah. yeah but yeah, I mean, in in some sense, yeah. Again, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I want to. I'm arguing why this is not preferable. I don't want to seem like I'm condemning other churches as disobedient because they do this. I'm saying we should strive for something else. Okay, so yeah, matters of necessity. LNPC has so many people, they can't fit everybody in one service. I get it. I, I, at some point, you've got to make concessions for that, and, and that's completely understandable. I don't want to, in any respect, uh, condemn that. But I'm talking about splitting it to meet the preferences of two different factions in the church, two different groups of people. Kim? Yeah. They don't worship together and often never see each other. Exactly. And so the, the younger people missed out in really getting to know the, the wisdom and the experience and the, the, the Christian faith of the older generations um, was missed out. And, and we, even, even back then, when we were younger, we were just like, this, this, isn't, this can't be healthy. Yeah, yeah. So that's, I, I think that's where, you know, when you're talking about this, that's where I see that this is the consequence of, of splitting uh, a contemporary and traditional. You are splitting the church. And I thought when you said that, how are we going to solve this division? And like, ironically, it actually creates. It does. Yeah, absolutely. One theologian said, a more perfect philosophy for dividing and separating the church into affinity groups can hardly be imagined. Just a side question on that. I mean, do we value community? We talk a lot about that. Or are we just here for an experience? That's the main question. This even applies to preaching. I mean, I hate to break it to you, but you're not going to find the best preaching in town right here. Okay? Do you go to church just for the preaching? Is that how you choose a church? Now, doctrine, doctrine uh, yes, doctrine is most important when choosing a church. But if you want to hear the best preachers in the world, do you, do you choose a church based upon that? No, there's a lot of other factors that come in in choosing a church. And one of them is community. You don't come just to have a personal experience. You come to love your neighbor and to be edified by your neighbor. To be loved by your neighbor, to serve, to live life alongside of them. And if you have two separate services and two separate churches, in a sense, you're not loving your neighbor in the most fundamental way, which is sitting beside them, essentially, in worship and joining them in praising and worshiping God. 
All right, so, yep, we've got to wrap this up. There must be a better way. That's what I'm going to argue. A better way, okay? Not, again, I, a better way, all right? A more preferable way. Let's define worship music next week and understand its purpose according to Scripture. That's what we're going to do. To find this better way, we've got to start with, okay, what's a very basic definition of worship music? What's its purpose in the service beyond what we've already considered? Let's examine the worship music that we see in Scripture, how it's used, and let's apply these things to both lyric and style. That's next week. Um, I think probably do next week a lot like this week, a lot of teaching, and then maybe the third week will just be questions or discussion, um, kind of like an open mic type thing. And then after that, of course, Kim Brinkley will be teaching How People Change by Paul Tripp. Any uh, closing thoughts? You have 30 seconds. Closing questions? I can answer them later. Kim? Yeah, want to grow the church um, in such a way that it brings glory and honor to God, which would be to grow the church God's way so that we can have a clear conscience and we know as well that the growth is true growth and it's not superficial like the weeds that sprout up in the shallow soil, but it's true and lasting uh, seed that will bear fruit. Amen. Let's close in prayer.